Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. Good evening. How's this? Is it... It's okay or higher? Okay. Anybody need it higher? A little bit higher for, for someone. How about now? Higher? It's okay. <clears throat> um, tonight I'd uh, I'd like to talk about <clears throat> transforming suffering into happiness. <clears throat> Sound pretty good? <clears throat> and uh, particularly at the, the focus of this is um, a few uh, a few days ago when we were still doing instructions and we had the instruction on, uh, on Vedana and uh, I, I spoke a bit then. I'm really following up on, on that tonight. Uh, as we mentioned, is uh, this quality of experience having a flavor of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality in every moment. And the Buddha said to take a really um, mindful, caring look at this because uh, there's, there's great potential in seeing this just for what it is, when the mind uh, gets confused and doesn't see clearly, um, we have a reaction to each of those. And the reaction to the pleasant is grasping. The reaction to the unpleasant is aversion. And the, action, the um, response to the neutral is uh, delusion. Can be thought of as um, just not really being present, being spacey, uh, but even more so um, as we often find ourselves doing, taking ownership in our experience when we're not clear. When we are attentive in a mindful way, then instead of grasping at the pleasant, we um, allow it to be here as it is uh, without that response, we are developing non-grasping or non-greed. <clears throat> when there's an unpleasant moment, instead of pushing away, we can uh, wisely have the response of non-aversion. You've seen how pushing things away uh, generally doesn't work so well, as the old saying goes, that, that which uh, you resist persists. But when we don't push away, when we can somehow open up and allow even the unpleasant to be here and meet it in a wise way, without that response, we are practicing non-aversion or non-hatred. 
allowing and even opening to receiving, even embracing the moment. And when we are <clears throat> clear about the neutral and or don't take ownership of our experience, we are cultivating non-delusion or wisdom. And those first three unmindful responses, greed, hatred, delusion, or attachment, aversion, ignorance, same, same thing, are the roots of suffering. The, the three poisons, it's some, they're sometimes referred to as. And the response, the wise response is non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion are the three roots of well-being. <clears throat> so all that's needed is an awareness of a Vedna wisely to transform what are planting seeds of suffering turning them into seeds of happiness. Isn't that neat? It's right there, right in that, in the moment, in every moment, there's that opportunity. And you, if you realize it, what a gift to see, oh, I have a choice here. I can either plant seeds of suffering or seeds of happiness. Hmm. However, uh, most it happens so quickly and it takes a lot of practice to see clearly, to give ourselves that choice. But to see in every moment that you're mindful, you are making the choice for well-being and happiness just in learning that response. So I want to talk particularly about these three non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion, and put them in their more positive statements. You know, a lot of times in Theravadan Buddhism, it's, uh, it's the negative. It's not this, it's not this, it's not this. Um, which is uh, useful in not reifying a particular concept, but there's also a value to see what it is. Non- Greed can be either expressed as the capacity to, um, uh, to not be hooked and to let go when experience is changing, to not hold on, or in its more positive expression, uh, fullest expression, generosity. Non-hatred in its more positive expression is love or loving kindness or just simply kindness, a friendliness with the moment. And non-delusion is in its more positive uh, expression, clarity, wisdom, seeing things clearly. <clears throat> so first we'll take each one and there's different dimensions that I want to uh, explore and, uh, and discuss with each one. So first this non-greed or not grasping, not, not holding on, not acquiring, not filling up our, um, 
our plate, either with things to do or um, behaviors or ideas that we hold on to. That's the second noble truth. The cause of suffering is that grasping. But it's so seductive in our culture where you are given thousands of messages each day saying, you need this to be happy. You know, there's that, that uh, um, magazine, Real Simple. Have you ever seen Real Simple? If you're not familiar with it, it's, uh, it's about uh, 250 pages uh, filled with advertisements about things that you'll need to simplify your life, you know. <laughs> It's very popular, too, because we crave simplicity. But we're so hooked on more. Somebody asked uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller, when he was the the richest person in the world, Mr. Rockefeller, um, how much money will be enough? And his response was, just a little more. Yikes! How would how would it be to live in that mind? You know, I mean, it's probably pretty good on the external, but to never be satisfied. And we're given all these messages that say, "Oh, you can do this, you can do that." You know, the, you know the uh, the syndrome, uh, FOMS, fear of missing something, that this culture just really fans. So I wanted to read to you uh, an article, um, an, part of an, an article by my favorite writer, uh, a fellow named Mark Morford, uh, who is online every uh, Tuesday or Wednesday, uh, San Francisco uh, Chronicle. And this is um, his essay called Hurry Up, Get More Done, and Die. He says, your terrifying word of the day is microtasking, and it comes by way of a relatively humble, ostensibly helpful article I read via one of those perky little do-it-yourself blogs that exist to tell you a million ways to tweak and hack your entire existence to gain maximum productivity, efficiency, and improved overall time management because, well, if that's not the true meaning of this manic American life, what is? The advice was horrifyingly simple. When you find yourself pausing in between normal projects and work tasks for anything more than, say, 30 seconds, why not take those tiny moments and, well, do more things? I mean, you're just sort of sitting there, right? What sort of things? Fast things, little things, otherwise inconsequential things that you don't care about otherwise, like clearing your junk mail, refilling the stapler, changing your voice message, voicemail message, retweeting someone's Twitter blip, or giving a momentary damn about something you need not give a damn about otherwise, but hey, what else are you going to do? Breathe? <laughs> Feel? Merely exist? What are you, a hippie? It's a fascinating and, yes, terrifying idea, really, that if you could just maximize your output a little bit more, if you could cram into all open white space another thing to do, wow, think of all you could get done by the end of the day. Think of how much you get checked off your list. We are, by and large, utterly terrified 
of silence, stillness, spaciousness, the doing of nothing so as to feel the totality of everything. Meditation for most is disquieting and strange. Deep quiet feels weird and dangerous, a void aching to be filled. The internet has us convinced that the world is a roaring fire hose of urgent information, and if you can't swallow it all, well, something must be wrong with you. In any 48-hour period in the year 2010, said an article I read in The Atlantic, more data was created than had been created by all of humanity in the previous 30,000 years up to the year 2005. I read the study myself in a 48-hour period. And by the year 2020, that same amount of data will be created in a single hour. In a single hour. Go ahead, swallow hard. It is no longer possible to sit quietly on the park bench without checking your Facebook feed, chatting with Siri, and waving to the closed-circuit TV cameras. It's no longer possible to be astonished at the wonder of your footfalls along the forest path and not feel the urge to check email, find the nearest Starbucks, hipstamatic the hell out of that beautiful fallen tree. You can't just sit in your car along a quiet country road without the GPS beeping that you took a wrong turn as OnStar politely blows up your car. (laughs) How easily we forget. Time expands, time contracts. Work will swell or diminish to fill a given space. You can do 10 things in an hour or one thing in 10. You can go to Spirit Rock Meditation Center for two solid weeks and do absolutely nothing but wander the grounds in silence for 12 hours a day and time will look at you like you're utterly insane as your breath and body thank you for all eternity. You can conversely microtask until your heart implodes and time will merely laugh and snort and find someone else to destroy. Kind of gives you the goosebumps, doesn't it? That's what we're up against, and we are continually seduced. Many of us, anyway. Most of us. So it takes some real clarity and real um, intention to not be hooked by the next thing whether it's the next object or the next thing to do to fill up our our plate. Mm, Just remembering. Here's um, from uh, Peace Pilgrim, the the really brilliant um, renunciate uh, wise woman who lived in the 20th century, just went around with a toothbrush and a very big heart and a lot of wisdom. You can see online the teachings of Peace Pilgrim. She says, if your life is in harmony with your part in the life pattern, and if you're obedient to the laws which govern this universe, then your life is full and good, but not overcrowded. If it is overcrowded, you're doing more than is right for you to do more than is your job to do in the total scheme of things. 
So this letting go of the next thing, of this wanting. In, um, in Pali, the, the word nekama, N-E-K-K-H-A-M-A, is usually translated as renunciation. And the Buddha talks about it as one of the sources of real joy. Renunciation doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun, does it? But when you think about it as just putting down the baggage that you don't need and really discerning between what you want, which is endless, from what you need, which is often uh, very minimal, then there's a tremendous lightening of the load. This is the movement from the second noble truth to the third noble truth. And you probably have seen it in your own meditation when things get a little bit um, quiet. There can be this sense of, uh, what am I supposed to pay attention to now? You know, not much going on. Hmm, maybe I can get a little entertainment here. Maybe I can create a drama in my mind. Not that you would do it intentionally. But we look for things to, um, to latch on to. It's like the desire is just looking for something to, to grasp onto. <clears throat> and the sense of real contentment, which I'm sure many of you, most of you have probably experienced, probably all of you in some moments or, not, or, or, or other, doesn't come from getting more. It comes from seeing, oh, this moment is complete just as it is. I don't need to add anything on. Wow. Do you know what I mean? And it's like, it's such a revelation because it's so counter the conditioning that we've had. But when you see, oh, this is contentment, not wanting, it becomes so appealing. It's kind of, there. there's a fullness there. I, I don't think I mentioned it here. My, my son, Adam, who's a practitioner, uh, came back on, on a, from one retreat and talking about uh, contentment, and he called it abundant enoughness. <clears throat> like, there's enough. It's full. And when we're, when we're kind of, when we're bored, we're saying not much is going on, really... The flip side of boredom is peace. We're looking for peace, and yet when there's not a whole lot of stimulation, come on, what else, what else you got? Life. But if you can just love, fall in love with the stillness, fall in love with the silence, fall in love with not needing anything more in this moment. Uh, this is uh, a tremendous love affair that, that will, can carry you all the way to full awakening. Not that it's only to be found in stillness. Remember that last talk where, you know, you don't want to confuse, that I, I said, you don't, you don't want to confuse just 
non-appearance or non-activity with the only way of, of freedom, but to really come to that place of stillness and completeness within the silence is, is very profound. <clears throat> so that's one aspect of this letting go, which you, you have a, the possibility of experiencing every moment that you see, oh, this moment is complete. What if I can just open up to it as it is without needing more? Or to fully experience the the delight when it's a wholesome state without needing to hold on to it because it changes. Then the the fuller experience of that non-greed, of generosity. Generosity and in, a, in the most profound expression, um, offering and serving others. The first paramita that we uh, are taught by the Buddha of the 10 paramitas, even before morality and wisdom and energy and loving kindness, he starts with generosity because it's something that everybody can relate to, that generosity is the act of letting go and also the experience of the interconnectedness that we share. It's a great source of joy that anybody knows, can experience. You know know that that feeling, sometimes we, we need to share, we want to share. You ever have a, the, the image that I often think of is uh, going out with some friends and you, you're going to the ice cream parlor. Don't want to stir you up too much right now, but you know. And there you are with a fantastic new flavor, right? You take a bite and it's like, wow. And you know that experience, oh, you got to try some of this. You know. Not too big a bite, but... <laughs> but but you got to try this. You know that experience? You just got, oh, you got to try it because it feels good to share the, the sweet and the pleasant. And our connection with others, that's what, um, that's what generosity is. It's the currency of our caring. When you've given a gift to somebody, think of a gift that you've given to to somebody uh, in recent times, or maybe somewhere in your past, a, a gift that you really loved giving. First of all, didn't it feel good to give it? And that connection that you feel with that person is is so much more, so much deeper through that exchange that connection. I have a, a cup uh, in, my, in my bathroom that's part of, it's the last one of a four cup set that was given uh, my, uh, it was a wedding gift 33 years ago. And every time, every morning, I drink it. Hi, Roger. You know. Hi, Francis. You know. 
there it is. I'm just there through that connection. That's how it works, isn't it? The stuff is so much, it's just stuff, but it conveys love between us. Isn't that wonderful? It feels good to share. <clears throat> Not to the point where you give away yourself and you're depleted, but coming from that place of abundance. And for some people, it feels good to share, but it's hard to receive. It's hard to take in. Uh, and I just want to put a word in for receiving and the importance of receiving uh, for those who it might be easier on the giving side. The, the karmic equation is the, the power of your karma, of a karmic act, depends on the purity in the heart of the, the one giving, the purity of the gift, and the purity of the one who's the purity of heart and the one receiving. So if you're giving something to someone and they have a hard time receiving it, how does that feel? You ever give a gift, gift to somebody and they say, oh, you shouldn't have done it. You know? Oh, why did you do that? Then you think, well, maybe I shouldn't have done it. You know? <laughs> but whatever you feel, it's not that fulfilling kind of a, an expression. But if somebody says, oh, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. It's like they're receiving and taking in your love and you're caring and it feels good for you. So actually, it's an act of generosity to receive graciously rather than being demure, oh no, I can't, I shouldn't. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. That completes the gift. <clears throat> Hmm. And then the fuller expression of this giving, which is a source of tremendous joy, and we've been uh, experiencing it probably um, in these Brahma Vihara days of compassion, the, the urge to want to relieve suffering for others. That is... Uh, engaged practice where you're wanting to make a contribution to the world in whatever way your gifts allow you to. Martin Seligman, who um, is the father of positive psychology, <clears throat> he wrote this wonderful book, Authentic Happiness. And he says that authentic happiness, after all of his studies, and really the, the essence of positive psychology is to discover your particular gifts and to experience the joy of giving them to the world, offering them to others. That's where the real happiness comes in, not in what you can get, but what you can give. And of course, that would work, that would make sense because what you can get is this more for me and that movement of contraction is, um, is the grasping. And that movement of generosity is expansion, sharing, and you're going beyond self. 
And I, I want to, we'll probably talk more about this later on in the, as the retreat goes on, but uh, I just want to mention a bit about how what, what we're doing here is an act of generosity, bringing a little bit more consciousness into the world. And also it can go beyond what we're doing here to find your gifts or as um, Andrew Harvey uh, says a phrase that I love, to, to follow your heartbreak. Follow where your heart is breaking and make a difference because um, that relieves the pain. Action absorbs anxiety, as Angelus Arian says. And I wanted to read to you, I know Sally read some the other, uh, the other night from Bhikkhu Bodhi, uh, but I wanted to read another passage from that same essay that she she read um, from called A Challenge to Buddhists. And uh, just to take this in as you're practicing and seeing that there's, um, there's something bigger that we can, um, how we can express our practice. <clears throat> in, if Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I'm apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential. Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite, but it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that in the face of the immense suffering which daily hounds countless human lives can present only a resigned quietism. The special challenge facing Buddhism in our age is to stand up as an advocate for justice in the world, a voice of conscience for those victims of social, economic, and political injustice who cannot stand up and speak for themselves. This, in my view, is a deeply moral challenge marking a watershed in the modern expression of Buddhism. I believe it also points in a direction that Buddhism should take if it is to share in the Buddha's ongoing mission to humanity. Bhikkhu Bodhi, a challenge to Buddhists, the premier translator. The world needs our caring. As my friend says, we're in a a race between fear and consciousness. And consciousness trumps fear in the long run. But we don't know if there's a long run. So you do what you can because we need all the caring and consciousness and expression of uh, compassionate action that we can get. Not to make it a burden, but to take it as uh, Julia Butterfly Hill calls a joyful responsibility. What else is there to do but bring a bit more kindness and love into this world and wisdom into this world? So, keeping that in mind, every moment that you're mindful and it's a pleasant moment and you're not grasping you are cultivating the seeds of both letting go and generosity of heart. Non-hatred or non-aversion. 
it's interesting how even though it's unpleasant, we can get caught in our reactions and um, aversion and ill will and aggression. It takes practice. It takes practice to have the response of say of opening up and saying yes this too this too is part of life and how can i open to myself or to others in a in a friendly way in a kind way and so we do the brahma vihara practice each each day and we've been saying since the beginning of the retreat that mindfulness really has a um a kindness infused right in there Otherwise, it's a cool detachment, but there's a friendliness with the moment that allows it to be how it is. Not grasping, but a, a, a meta-filled spirit of awareness. And we start as the metta practice um, unfolds. We start with ourself because if we can feel whole within ourself, then we have that much more to give to everybody else. And as I'm sure many of you have seen, it's not easy. You know, that's, I gave that talk on the comparing mind and the, the judgment last, uh, earlier in the retreat. It's such a, a deep habit to somehow exclude ourselves from the kindness that we would want to give to everybody else. So metta for self is, again, another an act of generosity. <clears throat> and I, I think I want to share with you, since uh, I have the opportunity, uh, another way of doing metta for oneself that I uh, hit upon during one um, six-week Brahma-vihara period a number of years ago. Um, That really was a turning point in my own practice. Um, I had been doing a metta, a week of metta for myself uh, at this period, and I was doing okay. I wasn't really giving myself a hard time, uh, but... It wasn't head over heels love. It was just being okay with myself. And I wasn't really connecting with a deeper dimension of truly embracing myself. And after about three days, um, somebody came to mind who I knew really loved me. I didn't know why, but I knew, well, this person, they really love me. And then I thought to myself, well, why do they love me so much? That was the magic question. You know, Why do they love me? And then I did this little shift of perspective, and I imagined being them and looking through their eyes and seeing who they saw. And I got myself in a way that I never had before. So I 
I just invite you to play along with me just to give you the opportunity perhaps to, to play around like this. Just close your eyes for a moment and bring to mind someone who you have a very sweet, loving, relatively uncomplicated connection with. And just imagine they're right here in front of you. Have an image of them, maybe smiling back at you. Oh, thank you for picking me. And feel that warm flow that you share. Just delight in it for a moment. You both are creating it together. And now for a moment, see if it's possible to just play around and imagine inhabiting their reality and seeing through from their eyes or their perspective who they see when they're with their friend. Why do they enjoy being with you so much? Maybe they see your kindness or your playfulness or your uh, sincerity or your intelligence or notice all the things that touch them about you. And from their perspective, does this person, their friend, deserve to be happy and treated kindly? That's probably all they wish for you. You might wish their friend, you, well, from their perspective. May you really see all the good inside you. And be kind to yourself. And now let your awareness float back and come right in from the inside and from the inside connect with yourself remembering those those qualities, those traits that your friend sees. Be kind to yourself. May I or may you, you can say second person, really see the goodness inside and share your love well. May I share my love well. Okay, you can open your eyes if you'd like. So, if you got even a glimpse, you can't pretend anymore. You're worthy of kindness and love. And why not see what your friend sees? As I like to say, if you met somebody who really got you, who really understood you, somebody, say, who, who uh, liked your sense of humor and your appreciated your taste and really understood you very, very well, how would you feel about meeting someone like that who really got you? Wouldn't you like it? There's one person that gets every joke that goes through your head. <laughs> Only one. Unfortunately, they're right inside your body. But if you met yourself from the outside, you'd be saying, where have you been all my life? 
finally, I met somebody who gets it. You know, that, uh, Albert Einstein has this expression, we live in an optical delusion of consciousness and we don't see from our own perspective, we don't see the truth. Get who you are. And then there's, besides kindness towards yourself, there's kindness for others and towards others. It just feels good to be kind. But people can disappoint us, of course. And often it's the people closest to us that can disappoint us. Or we look up to somebody and they somehow fall off their pedestal and... um, uh, and we can turn our back on them. It's very painful. Imagine that, the heart shutting down to somebody who you've respected and, and loved and benefited from. I've seen this with myself, with benefactors who didn't quite measure up and then they, they weren't quite as much in the benefactor category. And I've seen this and it's very... Uh, it's very painful and sad. And uh, I'll share with you a story for, that Ajahn Sumedho uh, shared with me. Uh, I shared, it was a, a gathering uh, in the last uh, last couple of years. Uh, he was talking about, uh, Ajahn Sumedho, who I read from before, he was talking, He had when he first got into, um, the, the, uh, into robes, he had a benefactor. He had an, like a, a monk, a senior monk, who taught him the ropes and who was a bit unbalanced and very rigid, um, but he, he could see that, but he was so generous with him. And he, but he just had his, he just had his, uh, his ways. And Ajahn Sumedho was very, very grateful to him. But at some point, this person left uh, disrobed and went back to lay life and ended up as uh, an alcoholic. And he would sometimes be around town and um, or sometimes stumble near the monastery. And when Ajahn Sumedho saw him, this is years, years afterwards that it had devolved into this, and uh, Ajahn Sumedho just was really turned off and disgusted by what had happened to this fellow. And he would kind of, uh, you know, be dismissive of him and not treat him with much respect. And Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Sumedha happened to mention at one point, uh, oh yeah, that fellow is, you know, he's a drunk out there. And he was talking about him somewhat disparagingly. And Ajahn Chah said, he was your benefactor. You owe him tremendous gratitude. And when you see him in town, you are to address him as Ajahn. And Ajahn Sumedho got his orders and he said from that point on, something really went in deep and he addressed him. When he'd see him, he'd remember how much he benefited, how he really was a a benefactor. And he would, at some point, started to always call him Ajahn. Ajahn! And when he did, that man sat up and became noble again. 
don't throw your the people who've benefited you out of your heart. And even if they disappoint you, even if they don't live up to the, the, the um, idealization, everybody who's benefited you is a benefactor. And to really start to see that, how, how much you've been given by life. And then there's, there's loving and kindness for ourselves, for others, and another dimension of loving kindness that I like to talk about is um, the Dharma. Our connection to the Dharma, that there's something very deep in you that is healthy to get in touch with from time to time. This is more than just an exercise of, okay, I'll be with this breath. We just had one a moment ago. Do I really have to pay attention to it? You know, all right, I'll be mindful. You know. Seeing the bigger picture, there's something that has pulled you here and it's something very pure and rich that you can honor and get in touch with from time to time. I'll share a story. Some of you have heard this where I, I saw for myself just the importance of that heartfelt quality in practice many years ago when I was with, with Ram Dass. Um, I, I had been practicing for a couple of years uh, and, but practicing all by myself. And Ram Dass, who wrote Be Here Now, this book that changed my life and many people's my age, um, was doing a small scene in, in New York, and Joseph told me about it. Uh, and, but it's a Hindu scene, a, 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 um, a devotional scene. And uh, I went to speak to him to see if it was appropriate for me to be there, because I was a card-carrying Buddhist by that time. Right? And uh, he said, okay, well, let me hear about your practice. And I told him about my practice. And then he said, well, you know, this is a devotional scene. I don't know if it'll work for you. Let me, let me ask you, um, do you love Jesus? And I said, well, I like Jesus. <laughs> he said, but do you love Jesus? I said, well, I, you know, I love the teachings. I, I don't know if I maybe love him the way I sense that you think I should, um, but I really do like him, you know. <laughs> you know? And he said, okay. He said, um, well, how about Krishna? Do you love Krishna? And again, I said, I like Krishna. <laughs> the, this expression of celebration and the divine and, and, and the aliveness in life, um, but I don't know if I, I, I love Krishna. And then he said, well, do you love God? And I said, well, Ramdas, um, I was raised Jewish, and for whatever reason, my image of God was this big man with a beard and a big book and a pen saying, you're going to have a good day and you're not. So I had more the fear of God in me than the love of God. It's just how my mind conceived of it. Um, but when I hear the word God, 
I think in terms of the Dharma, just the perfection of everything, the mystery of it all. And he said, okay. And then he said, well, do you love the Dharma? I said, oh yeah. He said, you're sure? I said, absolutely. And then he said, did you ever tell the Dharma that you loved it? (laughs) I said, no. He said, well, go ahead. I said, what are you talking about? He said, just say, I love you, Dharma. <laughs> really? Yeah. He said, I'll say it with you. Good, you, you go. So I said, feeling like a complete idiot, I love you, Dharma. And he said, I love you, Dharma. He said, keep on doing it. And I said, I love you, Dharma. And he said it. And by about the third or fourth time, I felt it. I love you, Dharma. At which point, uh, tears started rolling down my cheeks. And he said, oh, there's hope for you yet. (laughs) And I did end up being in that class. So that's something that I think we all can benefit from, just getting in touch with our own love of the Dharma, whether you call it the love of truth or the love of um, consciousness or awakening, there's something really powerful that's called you. And that heart quality, sadha, to put one's heart upon, is a very um, essential spiritual faculty. It's one of the five faculties. Don't miss it. You love the Dharma. Why else would you spend a month or two months here? You know, what did I do with my winter vacation? You know, you've got to love this. Or if not love, be very curious, be very, very drawn or ready to, to, to try something coming from the heart. So there's that kind of love. But even that is a dualistic love, me loving the Dharma. And so there's a deeper kind of love which points to the third of these qualities. The the love where there's not a separation of me loving the Dharma. It's just all dualities collapse and you are the Dharma. You know, Ajahn Chah has this great book called Being Dharma. And that leads us to non-delusion. Before I go there remembering that every moment that you are allowing the unpleasant is a moment of non-hatred or kindness, friendliness, non-delusion or wisdom. It's really seeing clearly just seeing clearly what's here right now and seeing clearly without taking ownership of your experience. It's that simple. You are not running the show. What a relief. It's exhausting to keep on trying to run the show all the time or think, 
I should be in control of my mind or I should be in control of my body and getting angry at it when it doesn't cooperate when really it's just following its own laws. And you can be amazed by it, be grateful for it, be um, inquiring into how this all is is going on, but you're not the agent that's pulling the strings. How freeing. Just seeing clearly, whether it's your body or your thoughts or your personality or your good or bad meditation, you are not the owner of your experience. I had an uh, a, a, um, um, an insight into this. It was a powerful insight um, many years ago. It was on my second three-month retreat. And uh, things were really kind of grooving along. I was in a, fell into this really um, quite extraordinary space that I'd never been in before. And I was just sitting for long hours and bright no not i did not have pain in my body and uh and i was um clear it didn't last but while it was there thought, wow and on this one sit i had been sitting for some time and somebody came into the hall and in the, and i would sit with my eyes open uh, uh, during those times. And this person who I respected tremendously, her practice, she sat down and after about you know, 20 minutes or so, she started having the, a classical case of the nods, right? just kind of down and up, down and up, right in front of me. And the thought occurred to me I don't know how I got here, but here I am and she's there and I know really well what that's like, very well. And it just was so clear that two days from now, that could be me. So to take any credit for what was going on was completely missing the experience, I don't know how I got there. If I knew, I would be doing it all the time. But what in that moment where I stopped taking credit, the, whole, the room kind of spun around and there were just these bundles of energy and here was some energy and clarity and here was sloth and torpor and here was loving kindness and here was restlessness and here was compassion and here was you name it. And it was just these energies that could play musical chairs, musical zafus, that we all can go through, you know. And so if you have a, a lovely meditation, notice, hey, I'm really doing it now. <laughs> Watch out. And if you have a not lovely meditation, a confusing meditation, or spacey or whatever, 
it's a misunderstanding to think, oh, what am I doing wrong? Particularly if you know that you're coming from a sincerity of heart. That's all you can do. That's all you can come, f- come from. Your sincerity, I said this earlier, is enough. And to take ownership of your experience is completely missing the point. As um, Carol Wilson loves to say, I love this line, she says, awareness doesn't care. Awareness doesn't care what is going on because whatever you're experiencing, it's going to change. So it's not about getting to one magical point and figuring out how to stay there. It's about being here for the ups and the downs and just learning how to be here for the ride. And the moment that you don't identify with your experience, the moment that you see, oh, this is impermanent, grasping on is dukkha, and this mind-body process itself is part of that flow of experience that really is outside of my control. That's where there's really freedom. Every moment that you see without identifying, every moment that you see a troublesome thought and say, oh, that's very interesting, but don't take it personally, It's a moment of freedom. So that moment of seeing clearly without grasping at the pleasant, pushing away the unpleasant, or identifying with the experience, this is how freedom arises and sowing the seeds of genuine happiness. This is from Dana Falls. I don't think I read this one before. She says, settle in the here and now. Reach down into the center where the world is not spinning and drink this holy peace. Feel relief flood into every cell. Nothing to do, nothing to be, but what you are already. Nothing to receive, but what flows effortlessly from the mystery into form. Nothing to run from or run towards. Just this breath, awareness, knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath, awareness, waking up to truth. Nothing to run from or run toward. Just this breath, awareness, knowing itself as embodiment. Just this breath, awareness, waking up to truth. So let's uh, sit for a moment. 